Well, all right, hello there. We are back. Welcome back to Hanging with Mr. Douglas. Hanging out with me. It's a pleasure to have you all here. And here we shall move on to Chapter 2 of Neville Goddard's Out of This World. The chapter's title, Assumptions Become Facts. Riding on the wave of the information introduced in our last podcast episode, which is also, I mean, it reminds me of a piggyback straight off of Joseph Murphy's empowering the subconscious mind. A belief is just something you think about over and over again until you and your subconscious think it to be true. And without further ado, let us continue on. Pleasure to have you all here. Chapter 2 of Neville Goddard's Out of This World, Assumptions Become Facts. Men believe in the reality of the external world because they do not know how to focus and condense their powers to penetrate its thin crust. This book has only one purpose, the removing of the veil of the senses, the traveling into another world. To remove the veil of the senses, we do not employ great effort. The objective world vanishes by turning our attention away from it. That's, uh, you know, universal message. And why I love reading these books is because no matter which direction you end up taking steps in, whether it be philosophy, magic making, manifestation, or powerful habit mastery and mastery over yourself, inside and outside, all of them all have a lot of overlap. And this right here, this statement, to remove the veil of the senses, we do not employ great effort. The objective world vanishes by turning our attention away from it. Boom. There it is. Whatever we turn our attention toward is what appears to us as reality. And anything our attention is not on drifts away. Now, of course, you got to start thinking to yourself, okay, what is attention, conscious and subconscious? Because my subconscious is certainly attending to my heartbeat, uh, my breath, you know, my digestion, my assimilation of nutrients. That's a kind of attention. And it's not an attention I'm consciously aware of. So attention does not just mean what I am consciously attending to, but here we are with our wonderful journey together attending to just how we can shape and direct and guide and position attention and, you know, continuing to define and deepen what that means in the direction in which we want to sail, in which we want to go, in which we want to climb so that we can stand upon the lives that we want to live and live the best that we can attending to just what will have us be in that best position. Ooh, at least that's why I feel like I'm here. Onward. We have only to concentrate on the state desired in order to mentally see it. But to give it reality so that it will become an objective fact, we must focus attention upon the invisible state until it has the feeling 
of reality. When through concentrated attention our desire appears to possess the distinctness and feeling of reality, we have given it the right to become a visible concrete fact. If it is difficult to control the direction of your attention while in a state akin to sleep, you may find gazing fixedly into an object very helpful. Do not look at its surface, but into and beyond any plain object such as a wall, a carpet, or any other object which possesses depth. And makes you wonder why, you know, those Tibetan monks would design those beautiful complex mandalas and soft focus stare at them, allowing their attention to glide into that image so as to then give inner attention to whatever it is they wanted to give attention to. Usually in meditation, the passing of thoughts. But yeah, okay, all right. Stare at a cool Turkish rug. Arrange it to return as little reflection as possible. Imagine that in this depth you are seeing and hearing what you want to see and hear until your attention is exclusively occupied by the imagined state. Joe Dispenza At the end of your meditation, when you awake from your controlled waking dream, you feel as though you had returned from a great distance. The visible world which you had shut out returns to consciousness and by its very presence informs you that you have been self-deceived into believing that the object of your contemplation was real. But if you know that consciousness is the one and only reality, you will remain faithful to your vision, and by this sustained mental attitude confirm your gift of reality and prove that you have the power to give reality to your desires that they may become visible, concrete facts. Another book I'm reading, the, um, it's, it's, well, the, the main title is Beyond UFOs, but it has to deal with uh, Edgar Mitchell's Free Society, which, uh, yeah, super oversimplification, but it deals with the quantum holographic uh, model of reality and how consciousness, and this is, seems to be a theme that has gone on for quite some time, you know, ever since we were writing things down, but how consciousness is the kind of basis of everything, and everything trickles down from consciousness or bubbles up from consciousness, which is continuously flowing. But here we are. If you know that consciousness is the one and only reality, how best to attend in engendering this assumption to allow this to be primary rather than what I see is what is real. I don't believe it until I see it. Put that out of your head and allow that to be simply the evidence appearing to you after attending to the one and only reality that is consciousness. And that's what we're doing here. That's what we're talking about. Putting consciousness first, putting that interior life first, and allowing the fruits of that attention mature in front of our physical sensory experience. So, okay. Define your ideal and concentrate your attention upon the idea of identifying yourself with your ideal. Assume the feeling of being it, the feeling that would be yours were you already the embodiment of your ideal. Then live and act upon this conviction, this assumption, though denied by the senses, if persisted in, will become fact. 
you will know when you have succeeded in fixing the desired state in consciousness by simply looking mentally at the people you know. One of the meditations I enjoy uh, to this degree uh, is, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, if you guys have ever tried this, let me know. But I enjoy every so often as I'm taking a walk or spending time and enjoying the time I'm spending with either people or places that I'm in and with, I, I like to take note and attend to the sensation uh, on my skin. What does it feel like? What does that tingle of the moment feel like? Because it feels good. I want to remember this sensation of me existing and how I am abutting up against the assumed physical reality. What does that feel like? What does the tingle of the moment feel like on my skin? And then I will, as I meditate, ask myself, what does it feel like? What does my skin feel like when I am in the place that I want to be in? When I am fully present in physical reality, how does that feel against my skin then? And that's a really uh, uh, sensory-inducing experience. You know, you get a little tingle, and it's a good little tingle. Maintaining that, you know, allowing yourself to maintain attention on that sensation is, of course, what I would consider the work of meditation. Because so often, the monkey mind flits back and forth from little things that it would rather focus on. But attending to that sensation of what would it feel like against my skin? How does my hair react to the most optimum state that I am in at any given moment? Where I want to be, right where I want to be, what does that feel like against my skin? I enjoy that sensation, and that's a sensation I enjoy attending to. Also, <laughs> I just narrated a book uh, called Little Habit Mastery, and uh, really, really good book. But it uh, uh, talks about, among other things, how you can uh, chunk down and really take on whatever habit you'd like to build in for yourself and uh, kind of tear down and disintegrate any bad habit you've built up for yourself. But one of the really cool takeaways, one of the bits of wisdom that, oh boy, was really powerful for me in solidifying this very topic we're talking about is... Um, one way to set goals for yourself that seem to be far more impactful, and the book had some nice evidence, scientific studies, psychological research to back this up, but uh, instead of setting goals like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds, or uh, I'm going to write 500 words a day, setting goals, obviously, they mean something to you. Uh, uh, I'm going to paint a painting once a month, whatever it is, instead of setting these goals and just setting these goals to set these goals. These goals have an identity associated with them, an identity that you want to, in fact, embody. And so, I am a painter. Well, what do painters do? They paint. A painter would at least paint one painting a month just to keep painting. I am a writer. Well, what, are, what do writers do? They write. So, writers are going to write. I am a podcaster. I will podcast. I am a voiceover artist. I will artist through the voice. I am a magician. I'm magic. I am a mental explorer. Identify what identity you want to embody and set goals from there rather than outside in setting goals, which without that kind of interior positioning and identification, 
would have uh, not as strong uh, consistency in getting done. So identify yourself with who you'd like to be, where you'd like to be. Assume that you are, in fact, that. And again, you know, if you are a painter, painters paint. So if you have a goal to paint once a month, well, I am a painter. And therefore, I will paint. Ah, and I remember the uh, reference. So um, uh, a psychologist ran a, an interesting um, experiment where they tested kids uh, getting band instruments for the first time and what it was about these kids' perception that may have had an influence on you know, how good they got over time with these instruments. And it turned out that it was the kids' perception of whether or not they wanted to just do it because friends did it, they wanted to do it for a couple of years, or they wanted to play instruments for the rest of their lives because they considered themselves musicians that actually influenced their ability to retain what it was they were doing with the instrument, practicing, performing. Even those kids that, you know, said, well, I want to, you know, play an instrument for a couple of years while I'm in school, put it on the uh, school resume. Those kids, even though they may have practiced longer and harder hours than the kids who considered themselves uh, musicians, they didn't do as well over time as the kids who actually just said, no, I'm going to be playing this. I'm a pianist. I'm a flautist. I'm a trombonist. I'm a trumpetist. I'm an oboist, a violinist. I'm just going through instruments now. But, you know, the idea is that if you identify yourself as what it is you want to be, the goal you set from that position will have innately more fire, long-lasting and hotter burning for you than setting the goal from the outside in. And here we are, Neville Goddard, saying the same thing. Assume the feeling of being it, the feeling that would be yours were you already the embodiment of your ideal. Then live and act upon this conviction. Really cool. And onward. In dialogues with yourself, you are less inhibited and more sincere than in actual conversations with others. Therefore, the opportunity for self-analysis arises when you are surprised by your mental conversations with others. If you see them as you formerly saw them, you have not changed your concept of self, for all changes of concepts of self result in a changed relationship to your world. In your meditation, allow others to see you as they would see you, were this new concept of self a concrete fact. You always seem to others an embodiment of the ideal you inspire. Therefore, in meditation, when you contemplate others, you must be seen by them mentally as you would be seen by them physically, were your concept of self an objective fact. That is, in meditation, you imagine that they see you expressing that which you desire to be. If you assume that you are what you want to be, your desire is fulfilled, and in fulfillment, all longing is neutralized. You cannot continue desiring what you have already realized. Your desire is not something you labor to fulfill, it is recognizing something you already possess. It is assuming the feeling of being that which you desire to be. The conceiver and his conception are one. Therefore, that which you conceive yourself to be can never be so far off as even to be near. For nearness implies separation. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Mark 9.23 Being is the substance of things hoped the evidence of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. 
If you assume that you are what you want to be, then you will see others as they are related to your assumption. If, however, it is the good of others that you desire, then in meditation you must represent them to yourself as already being that which you desire them to be. It is through desire that you rise above your present sphere, and the road from longing to fulfillment is shortened, as you experience in imagination what you would experience in the flesh were you already the embodiment of the ideal you desire to be. I have stated that man has, at every moment of time, the choice before him which of several futures he will encounter. But the question arises, how is that possible when the experiences of man awake in the three-dimensional world are predetermined, as his observation of an event before it occurs implies? This ability to change the future will be seen if we liken the experiences of life on Earth to this printed page, or digitized page in my particular circumstance. Man experiences events on Earth singly and successively in the same way that you are now experiencing the words of this page. Imagine that every word on this page, or word coming out of my mouth into your ears, Imagine that every word on this page represents a single sensory impression. To get the context, to understand my meaning, you focus your vision of the first word in the upper left-hand corner, and then move your focus across the page from left to right, letting it fall on the words singly and successively. By the time your eyes reach the last word on this page, you have extracted my meaning. Suppose, however, on looking at the page with all the printed words thereon equally present, you decided to rearrange them. You could, by rearranging them, tell an entirely different story. In fact, you could tell many different stories. A dream is nothing more than uncontrolled four-dimensional thinking, or the rearrangement of both past and future sensory impressions. Man seldom dreams of events in the order in which he experiences them when awake. He usually dreams of two or more events, which are separated in time, fused into a single sensory impression, or, in his dream, he so completely rearranges his single waking sensory impressions that he does not recognize them when he encounters them in his waking state. For example, I dreamed that I delivered a package to the restaurant in my apartment building. The hostess said to me, You can't leave that here. Whereupon the elevator operator gave me a few letters, and as I thanked him for them, he in turn thanked me. At this point, the night elevator operator appeared and waved a greeting to me. The following day, as I left my apartment, I picked up a few letters which had been placed at my door. On my way down, I gave the day elevator operator a tip and thanked him for taking care of my mail. Whereupon he thanked me for the tip. On my return home that day, I overheard a doorman say to a delivery man, you can't leave that here. As I was about to take the elevator up to my apartment, I was attracted by a familiar face in the restaurant, and as I looked in, the hostess greeted me with a smile. Late that night, I escorted my dinner guests to the elevator, and as I said goodbye to them, the night operator waved goodnight to me. By simply rearranging a few of the single sensory impressions I was destined to encounter, and by fusing two or more of them into single sensory impressions, I constructed a dream which differed quite a bit from my waking experience. When we have learned to control the movements of our attention in the four-dimensional world, we shall be able to consciously create circumstances in the three-dimensional world. 
We learn this control through the waking dream, where our attention can be maintained without effort, for attention minus effort is indispensable to changing the future. We can, in a controlled waking dream, consciously construct an event which we desire to experience in the three-dimensional world. The sensory impressions we use to construct our waking dream are present realities displaced in time or the four-dimensional world. All that we do in constructing the waking dream is to select from the vast array of sensory impressions those which, when they are properly arranged, imply that we have realized our desire. With the dream clearly defined, we relax in a chair and induce a state of consciousness akin to sleep, a state which, although bordering on sleep, leaves us in conscious control of the movements of our attention. When we've achieved that state, we experience in imagination what we would experience in reality were this waking dream an objective fact. In applying this technique to change the future, it is important always to remember that the only thing which occupies the mind during the waking dream is the waking dream, the predetermined action which implies the fulfillment of our desire. How the waking dream becomes physical fact is now our concern. All right, here we go. Here we go, Neville. Our acceptance of the waking dream as physical reality wills the means for its fulfillment. Let me again lay the foundation of changing the future, which is nothing more than a controlled waking dream. Define your objective. Know definitely what you want. Construct an event which you believe you will encounter following the fulfillment of your desire, something which will have the action of self-predominant, an event which implies the fulfillment of your desire. Immobilize the physical body and induce a state of consciousness akin to sleep. Then, mentally feel yourself right into the proposed action, imagining all the while that you are actually performing the action here and now, so that you experience in imagination what you would experience in the flesh were you now to realize your goal. Experience has convinced me that this is the perfect way to achieve my goal. However, my own many failures would convict me were I to imply that I have completely mastered the movements of my attention. I can, however, with the ancient teacher, say, This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize. Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14. And that was chapter 2. Straightforward. Bang, bang, bang. It's that sleepy, dreamy state that seems to be incredibly important, that relaxed attention, and then maintaining that relaxed attention on just what it is that you are going to attend to so completely that the physical attention falls away and attention to what it is you would like to then fill your physical attention. So much so, you attending to it that it becomes physical in all, uh, for all intents and purposes because that's how much attention you're giving it. Uh, that's what you end up focusing on first. And this seems to be repeated everywhere from Maxwell Maltz to Joe Dispenza to Joseph Murphy and now Neville Goddard. It's a pretty wonderful stuff here and I am happy to be exploring this with you because we're in a place here in the world 
where I certainly at times have felt in my past quite a bit lost. Yet always with the gnawing idea that, hey, there is something, there is something here that I can provide ownership toward within my mind to give attention to that I know will help me move forward. And as enjoyable as pursuing continuous amounts of instant gratification, whether it be video games or TV shows or movies, there is something more gratifying in being on the cause side rather than the effects side of your own life. And it seems this is a, uh, a really great way to juice yourself into the cause side. So thank you, thank you, Neville Goddard, and thank you all for hanging with me. We'll hit up chapter three next. Catch you on the next one.